Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, episode number 47. I got Jonathan Howe with me today. Um, we've been going back and forth a little bit on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty sure he just put down a glass of liberal tears, although those are a lot of his constituents, so I'm sure there's a uh, quite a supply there. <laughs> John, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Of course. Excellent. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Um, you are not too far north of me, I believe. I'm in Pittsburgh, so I'm about an hour, or well, an hour north of Pittsburgh. You're a little bit further north in New York, and you're running for Congress up there. Um, just give a brief introduction to yourself, and we'll kind of see where it goes. Yeah, well, my, my name is Jonathan Howe. My website is howe2022.com. I'm running for Congress here in New York, which in what looks like will be the 14th Congressional District. They're still redistricting, so we actually don't know uh, what district we're running in yet, but I currently live in the 14th, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the congresswoman in the 14th. So in theory, I'll be running against her. Now, they could redistrict it where they split the district somehow. I don't, I don't know, but it looks like I'll be running against her. And, you know, I was really sparked to run by, you know, I've always been a libertarian. I've always complained about government excess. And then 2020 happened. You know, they shut down the economy. They locked us all in their home, our homes. I did fine. I'm a lawyer. I'm a public defender working in family court. I, I represent parents and, you know, uh, you know, who are accused of abuse and neglect by, by the government. So people have had their kids taken away. I was doing fine. I was making the same salary. I didn't have to commute. I, I still get to work from home. And I noticed, well, my clients. That is not the case. They've all lost their jobs. They're all suffering. You know, they, they can't send their kids to school because they don't have internet. This is ridiculous. Like the, the, the divide that has been growing in this country for, for many decades, it, it is snapping. And so I said, I have to run for Congress. And then I looked at the deadlines and it was way too late. And that was 2020. So I said, okay, I'm going to start planning for that now. Uh, and so I've just pretty much been telling people, like, I'm going to be doing this. I've been looking in, like, how do you run a campaign? How do you do this? How do you raise money? And that last part, I apparently never learned, uh, but the rest of it has been going pretty well. 
Um, the, the Queens Libertarian Party here in, uh, in Queens, it's a fairly new like restart of the Queens LP. They've been incredibly supportive. Uh, and it looks like we're going to have a really good uh, lineup of libertarians running in 2022. We've got Larry Sharp running for governor. I know that you had him on. Uh, we got Tom Queter in uh, New York 52. Uh, great candidates running right now. And I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of the Libertarian Party. Uh, you know, I, I've, been, I've been writing on my website now. I think we're going to keep it. My slogan so far has been peace, justice, and a clean planet through liberty. You know, they kind of sound like slogans, but they're essentially what AOC was selling. And the sad part is that libertarians, if you really drill down to it, we're leaders on all three of those issues. Like we should be leaders. We should be out front crowd saying, we've been saying this since 1971, you know, about the drug war, about the wars overseas, about the inflation and the Federal Reserve and all of that. And if we can actually communicate on these topics and show that, you know, our positions have been right, and now we have evidence this time has passed, we should actually be winning elections. And I, I think that you know, even if I don't win, if I can make a strong showing, I can show that libertarians are actually leaders on the issues that people care about. Absolutely. And I've said for a long time, especially since I started this show, that um, 2022 and 2024 are going to be huge years for libertarians. Um, that being said, does it seem like the libertarian message is resonating with people in New York? Personally, from my experience being locked down in uh, Pennsylvania, I know it wasn't as bad as New York. Um people are really, really hungry for this message. And not only that, um, you know, when the issues that we've been speaking to for so long are now coming to fruition, it's, you know, it's so hard to ignore. And we've been kind of over here saying since, you know, Ron Paul really became big, you know, Hey, <laughs> we know what's going on here. We know these are issues. We know the, you know, the solutions. Why haven't you guys been listening? Well, now it seems like people don't really have any other choice but to listen. So um, has that kind of rang true for you? Just to pick up on the Ron Paul thing there, you know, he was the one who, you know, sounded crazy in 07 and whatnot mm -hmm. when I was campaigning for him saying that uh, borders keep people in, not out. And, you know, we've seen that very, very vividly in the past two years. It was something I think a lot of people thought he was a little kooky on, uh, on borders back then, but I think that he's been proven uh, correct on that. Uh, but it's a message spreading. I think it's a mix. Because a lot of people are just terrified right now. You know, we have been propagandized, uh, to, to an, an extreme extent, like, you know, people, if you even mention the idea that someone, you know, might be unvaccinated, they'll be like, we will go with them. Like it, it you know, we will take them to get vaccinated. And I, I will say this, I'm vaccinated and I have not eaten indoors legally since September because I'm not going to show my, my vaccine passport. I haven't shown it to anyone except my employer. I don't even know where it is now. Um, so some people, there's just a wall there. And I think it's just going to take time for that fear to dissipate, for people to realize that COVID didn't end the world. Uh, but for other people, it's the first time that they've ever been receptive to this. Like I have a, a, I'm sure you do too. A lot of people call you up and be like, "You said this type of thing could happen. I, I didn't believe you, but but you know you were right. You know what else, what is going to happen next?" And I always say, like, "No, no, I I never even predicted this far down. Like I didn't think it would move this quickly. That by 2022 we'd still be locked in our homes and whatnot." Uh, but just like people on the street, especially small business owners, I, I'm in Astoria, there's tons and tons of small businesses here, they're slowly being replaced by chains. And when I talk to the owners of those businesses, they're very receptive, because they've, they've seen what the government has done to them, they've seen the burden that the government has put on their shoulders. And it's not one that they ever agreed to, it's not any social contract they ever signed. But now they're essentially in charge of monitoring our health information, and enacting a government tracking app. So that's where it's eventually going to go, you're going to have to have the vaccine on your app, you're gonna to have to show the app is gonna track. That's how most people actually show their vaccine right now. 
uh, and they didn't sign up for that. And it shouldn't be on them to do that. So those types of people have been very responsive. And the type of people who frequent them and hang out with them have been very responsive. But the, the, a certain group of people, you know, and it's not their fault. You know, they've been, you know, you're talking about, you know, liberal tears. Like, I, I hope we start shedding liberal tears of happiness at some point when they realize, oh, my God, I've been brainwashed and I can come out of this. Um, but there's some people who are just really, really scared. And so something we have to do, if we want to, if we want to communicate these issues that we're leaders on, we have to come to people knowing that they're in a position where they're scared. If we don't talk to them on, on that level, then we're never going to communicate to them. If we just come out and say, you know, what the fuck happened in 1971 and, you know, uh, you know, just start chanting Ron Paul or revolution, like that, that's not going to do it. We, we have to approach them from a, a place where they're, like, they're traumatized. Anyone who has lived through this and believes all the official narrative is, is traumatized right now. Otherwise, you're a sociopath. Like, if you believe everything that's going on and you're not just totally out of your rocker at this point, you're a sociopath. So if we don't talk to people like they're in a place of trauma, then we're not going to be able to communicate. Yeah. Wow. And honestly, I can't say I've really even thought about it that much. And at first I would get kind of angry with people who are completely fitting on the COVID narrative because so much of it has been crumbling. But I also try to come from a place of understanding and say like, look, every night you turn on the TV and this is what you're told. You're told that if you get this virus, you don't recover, you have no natural immunity, um, you know, you're going to kill people just by walking outside. You know, children are told that they're basically a threat to the elderly just by breathing in the air. So they walk outside with masks on all by themselves. Um, like I said, it kind of made me mad at a lot of people, but take a second and realize, like, like you said, these people have been indoctrinated. They've been completely beaten into traumatization around this narrative that once again, the COVID's going to come, it's going to get you in your sleep and wherever you go. And if you don't wear your mask, if you don't get vaccinated, if you don't show your vaccine passport, then um, you're not a good person and you're trying to kill your grandmother. Um, and the and, way that I know yeah. that it's a, a media narrative, like me personally, I was in China with my now wife. Uh, December 2019, we came back uh, January 2020. We came back on my birthday, January 17th. And I remember that very vividly because it was the longest birthday of my life. We flew back around the world. It was like a 32-hour day. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Um, but when we landed, I, the moment we landed, I texted my boss, January 17th, 2020. I was like, hey, to the virus, I assume everyone's freaking out about it. Like, I'm happy to work from home for the next week or two, like if, if everyone's afraid. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you just took three weeks off. I'll see you on Monday. And I realized that no one here had heard about it. Where we were over in China, everyone was talking about it. What were we talking about here? We were talking about the Trump impeachment. We were mm -hmm. still going through the Trump impeachment, which, yep. which had been done before I left. And so I was like, oh, great, the, the great Chinese firewall. I won't have to see any of that crap. Uh, and then I got back and they hadn't even started it yet. And my God, that whole time that COVID was on its way over here and everyone in China was talking about it. You know, two days after we left there, they shut down the Great Wall. We had been there a day before. Uh, China knew it was serious. I knew that people were coming from China and I could tell everyone about it and I didn't care. But the moment it started coming on the news and they're saying, oh, there's old ladies falling over in the streets. And you know, we know all that was probably bogus, but that's a, a different story. Once they started putting out you know, the, the fear porn, that's when people who knew I hadn't been in, to China in over a month at this point were running across the courthouse to get away from me. Like people would not enter the same courtroom with me because they knew that I had been to China. Whereas right when I'd gotten back from China, when I was freaked out about it, nothing. Wow. 
Yeah, and that's crazy that you brought up the Trump impeachment. <laughs> that's how you know it's been a long two years because that feels like forever ago. I mean, that doesn't feel like even like the same universe anymore. When you think about stuff that happened in 2019, you're like, holy crap. It literally feels like a lifetime ago. It's all about Ukraine and Ukraine is back in the news. And Mm -hmm. I haven't seen anyone connect any of this stuff. But I, working full time, doing this campaign full time, I I haven't even made all the, I don't even know what the hell is going on in Ukraine right now. I just know that we shouldn't be sending troops there. We shouldn't be antagonizing uh, Russia. But like, there's probably some like, much deeper story that I'm missing right now by doing all of this, but I hope I don't miss the story and then end up, you know, atomized one morning. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, what's funny is I was uh, I was kind of tweeting about this and I actually made a Facebook status about this, but um, it's kind of been on my mind. You know, we, we empowered neo-Nazis essentially in Kiev to overthrow the government in Ukraine, right? The U.S. did this under Barack Obama and joe biden who were supposed to be you know the good democrats the good liberal democrats who were going to bring world peace even though they bombed you know hundreds of thousands of children and then you know we basically put sanctions on their country to shoe in one of joe biden's kids to be a superior in a big corporation over there and then you know trump just asked a question about it right and then we go to impeach him which look i'm all for impeaching donald trump and throwing him in prison for the rest of his life for the war crimes in yemen yeah Yeah. but if we're gonna get on like let's get him on the legit stuff i don't want to do witch hunts if we're gonna impeach somebody let's do it for the reasons that they deserve and i'm totally cool with that but it wasn't that so um now because Russia is supposedly amassing troops on the border. Now we want to fight a hot war with another nuclear powered country. Like, do you not see how this can go wrong? And to be equally as spiteful to Republicans, if Trump was in there right now, he'd be trying to ramp up tensions with China because I'm, I'm very, very familiar with the right wing base working as an auto mechanic for the last 10 years. Believe me, if Trump said, let's go to war with China, these guys would be ready to go in a heartbeat. So oh, yeah, both sides would be finding their own, you know, their little button to push. But um, and it's funny. I, I, uh, what's the channel? It's the one with Crystal and Sagar. You know, they broke off from Rising mm-hmm. and they started their own channel. Yeah. They had a poll of their audience and it was like, should the U.S. go to war to defend Taiwan? And it was like 65% yes. And they're supposed to be like the progressive population. Right. Oh, like, what? <laughs> what? Who he, does anyone want to go die for Taiwan? And the, the yeah. thing that, I, and I, you know, I'm not like pro China by any means, but like we have to be realistic about this. A, we would all die. B, the official stance of the U.S. government is that Taiwan is part of China and that China is one country. Like that, if you go on the State Department website mm-hmm. and you look up Taiwan, that's what it says. So we're going to go fight for a country that we don't even have the guts to recognize. Right. I, and I don't think that's going to happen. But it, it was so it, funny to it, me that this progressive anti war channel was willing to go. That China is the world power. Russia's nothing at this point, and we're we're antagonizing. We shouldn't be antagonizing with any anyone who has nuclear weapons or anyone at all. Right. But the idea of like pushing these two narratives, which are only going to end in destruction, and that we can't win, even if they didn't end in nuclear destruction. Like we can't win a war on the border of Russia from America. We can't win a war in Taiwan from America. That's not how it works. Right. And the other thing is, is that nobody recognizes that China may seem like this big global dominant power, but they're they're not much different than us. Right. They're a big house of cards, too. So basically, this is like two house of cards fighting in a valley with gusts of wind going, seeing who can fall over first. Right. 
because 30% of their population over in China still picks their agriculture by hand. I mean, these are dirt, dirt poor people who do the same thing we do. I mean, we spend, like the government spends 130% of what it takes in taxes over here, right? China does that except for the tune of 250%. So it's both like these monetary Ponzi schemes that are just on the verge of collapse. The, the one benefit right. China has is that they started more recently and they mm -hmm. still have an industrial base. So people could exactly yeah. see the Ponzi scheme playing out for a little mm -hmm. bit longer. Right. Our Ponzi scheme can end very quickly. I, there's a, yeah. an incredible graph. If you go on Wikipedia and you look up, I think it's the denarius. It's a Roman silver coin that was used mm -hmm. for like 150 years. And it shows the silver content of the denarius over each uh, emperor. And it literally just goes vroom, vroom. And like they mark where the wars begin, where like the big yoke know, uh, and you can see it like start to go down, start to go, and then like the civil war and it goes down, and then it goes all the way to the end. And you know, it gets to the point where there was barely any silver in these coins, which was supposed to be almost entirely silver. Right. Exactly what we're doing, except that they couldn't print stuff as fast, so they just watered down their metals. Uh, that's exactly what's happening to us. So we're further along that that curve that mm -hmm. we've built an empire. China's on the curve because they're building an empire in a different way, uh, but they're building an empire. They're they're not nearly as far along on the curve. Uh, right. They haven't started. They haven't really started the expansion phase. They've kind of started the the warming up phase. You know, they, they've they've conquered what they consider China, everything except Taiwan. Uh, you know, and th there's a chance maybe we're just thinking about this from a Western mindset. Maybe China doesn't actually plan to become an empire. They just want to trade with everybody, but. When someone has power, they have an incentive to abuse it. So I'm just going to assume the worst. Yeah. And well, the, the other funny part is, is that with the whole Trump and China deal is that he's saying we're getting ripped off. Well, let, let's let's take a step back for a second and let's take kind of a neutral stance. Right. We hold the world's reserve currency. And if you look at our trade deficits on paper, Joe Biden just set another record trade deficit. I can't remember what it was, but every single month we're setting these record trade deficits. And under Trump, we did the same thing, which he criticized Obama for. And he criticized Obama for plenty of things that he did the same exact thing himself. We have trade deficits of, I want to say it's around 93 to $94 billion a month with China. What did we have to do to make that currency? Hit a digit on a computer. And you what know, it's did funny. go ahead? Sorry. Oh no, no, you're right. Um, what did the Chinese people have to do to you know earn that trade deficit? They had to work, <laughs> they had to produce stuff, and then all we had to do is make a digit on a computer and send them paper, and they make stuff and send us stuff. And Chinese people, their standard of living is a lot lower than ours. So when you factor all that in, who's really getting the raw deal here? I mean, we're in the in the short run, they're getting the raw deal, but mm -hmm. in the long run, I mean, they've they've managed to you know, to bankrupt us, bankrupt us, and to, to expose our Ponzi scheme and make yep. it very very difficult for us to ever recover. Mm -hmm. You know, like good for them. You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I only went to, to three cities. I went to Shanghai for like two weeks. I was in Changsha, which is in Hunan province, for a few days, and then in Beijing. And in Shanghai, you know, you're, you said you know, their standards of living are lower. One of the most beautiful, clean cities I've ever been to. Uh, the, the subway is incredibly clean. Everything's very fast and efficient and and just very, very nice. I'm sure when you get to the outskirts, it's a little different, but it, it was you know, really, really, really high end. When you got to Changsha, which is considered like a developing city, 
I, again, I thought it was very high tech and beautiful and incredible architecture and you know, new buildings. But there were also people like, uh, you know, smoking their meat in the middle of the highway. You know, th there was you know, some, you know, people doing, you know, uh, not necessarily developed stuff. And it and I don't I wouldn't normally put it that way, but all yeah. around the city, and you didn't see this in Beijing and, and Shanghai, there'd be like signs that say uh, civilization persuasion chamber. And essentially it would be a place where it's not a place where you go if you get arrested, but if you get being seen doing something that's like not, you know, like you know, first uh, first level city, then they'll bring you in there and they'll they'll have a talk with you. Like you shouldn't spit on the street or you shouldn't be drunk, you know, walking around in the middle of the day, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they'll, and they'll lecture you and they'll, they'll, they'll give you a class on it. They'll do it right then and there, apparently. Uh, so I, I found that very interesting. They, they didn't have it in the, like the super developed cities. They did in the, in the much smaller city. Uh, and then, you know, those first two ones, very, very well connected. In Beijing, which again is like going to DC here, not, not a fun city to visit in my opinion, but both taxi drivers we had were saying stuff like, that, that's the building where we design the missiles where we're going to kill the Americans. And like, that's where you know, they, they draw up the battle plans. And they're just like being very, very aggressive and anti-American. It was very, very strange. Whole rest of the country, everyone was very welcoming. But I got an impression from Beijing that was not positive. Jesus. Wow, yeah, I couldn't even imagine. The uh, furthest I've gone out of the uh, country was to the Dominican Republic. I think I went there twice, once when I was probably about 15 and then probably about two years ago with my fiance, crazy enough. Yeah. 2019, a whole different time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could actually go somewhere. Right. Uh, but no, just, just on, on China, it, it was something that was, you know, it couldn't have been timed better for me to get back right. when, when all of this began and just look like I, I was a, you know, a, a prophet, but it wasn't like China was doing like a huge favor to its population by being like, yeah, we have a virus. Like they, they weren't like being like very, very nice. It's that our government and our media apparatus intentionally distracted from it for, for a full, almost a full two months before people really started paying attention to it. It was at least a full month before anyone I knew was worried about it um, after I got back. And it was just remarkable how back in China, it was all people were talking about when we left. And then one plane flight away, no one here was talking about it. And yet we say that we have the free media and that we're the ones who can freely uh, exchange ideas and I, it, it has always struck me as I or it has long now struck me as ironic right absolutely well kind of uh shifting gears you're probably one of the only libertarians I've really heard hit on the environmental piece so kind of um explain your interest in the environmental deal and I'd like to have a little bit of a back and forth with you because there's a lot of things not only as a mechanic, but as a person who advocates for, you know, animal agriculture, um, that really interests me about the environmental deal. And like I said, I feel like not a lot of libertarians talk about this, but this is an area where we could have a lot of strength where we don't flex that muscle, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And the, the, the libertarian model of environmentalism, I think, can be summed up by uh, something that Ron Paul always used to say, and it's perfect that you work on cars. Let's say you drain the oil out of your car and then you walk over to your neighbor's yard and you not only dump it on his yard, but you dump some on him too. Well, you've not only trespassed on his property, you've damaged his property and you've assaulted him. Right. You know, that, that's very, very basic. But somehow when we expel these chemicals from a factory, we don't think about it like that because it's so little over you know, a, a long amount of time. And essentially in the law, we've made it very, very, very difficult for class action to, to be made on those types of damages. 
And really, they should be happening all the time. And some people will say, oh, well, why don't you just let the government do it? You know, it's in everybody's interest. The government should do it when it's in everybody's interest. That you know, enough people getting together is just the government. Except that there's no incentive for the government to do it. There's an incentive for the individuals to come together and do it because they get something out of it. There's no incentive for a regulator to fine a company for doing something. There is an incentive to be made whole when you're damaged by a company that did something to you. And so I think that we just need to treat pollution essentially like assault and trespass. And it's going to take a very, very, it's going to take a lot of changes in order to start treating it that way. But all of the changes are just getting rid of laws. It doesn't require making any new laws. You just start taking away the organizations that are putting these, you know, limits or these caps. You know, they might say you can put this much into the air per year. We have no idea if that number is arbitrary, if it's based on science, if anyone is being harmed. But if people are being harmed, they should have the right to group, you know, band together as a group, as a class, and file class action. This should be much, much easier. Uh, the other thing, just in general, corporations are government entities. Like they, they, they don't act like you and me. If I rip someone off, I get in trouble. If, if Walmart rips someone off, the CEO doesn't get in trouble. The person who did it doesn't even usually get in trouble. The shareholders all pay for it. And we're all shareholders if you have a 401k. You're invested in all those big funds that you're popping up their, uh, their lawsuits. Um, but the, the corporate system essentially makes it so that if you take a risky act in the name of profit and you destroy you know, property, you personally are not liable. You don't have to be afraid. Your company might go under, okay, you bounce to the next one, but you are not afraid. And I, I think we need to start dismantling corporate protections as well. And again, that doesn't require any new legislation. It requires peeling back legislation. I, I use the example of the, uh, the CEO of BP, where you know, they were negligent. You know, they, they knew that there was a problem there. It had been reported. It exploded. People died, covered the entire gulf in oil. And then the CEO of BP, he didn't go into hiding and like plead to a country that won't you know, deport you. He came to America and went around America and was like, sorry, everybody, like, this is really crappy. I'm so sorry that we did this. Like, uh, here's a, a fee. It's capped at a certain amount and we'll distribute it. The government will distribute it for you. That's not how it should be. He should have been in jail. Like, he, he should have been in jail for a long time until he could pay all those people back. You know, anyone in the shrimping industry along the Gulf Coast had a claim against him. And yet, because he's the CEO of BP and you know, BP absorbs that cost. And again, if you have an investment account, if you have a 401k or any kind of retirement account, and you're buying you know, funds, which the government incentivizes you to do with money, you're propping all these companies up. So they make it very, very hard for these mega corporations that are destroying the planet to ever go under because they're all in the index funds. So that's a very basic idea is that we just have to, we believe in private property and we believe in bodily autonomy. And so if someone trespasses on your property or if someone puts something into your body that you didn't consent to, that's violence, that's trespass. There's a, a cause of action there. And it should be handled that way in court where people actually have an incentive to right the wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. And I've listened to you in a few interviews laid out that way. And I think that's a very, very reasonable way and something that we should pay attention to because this show in particular is all about taking care of yourself so that way you can live a life full of liberty and health. Um, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding around animal agriculture and because i'm such an advocate for consuming animal products just real quick um I don't know if you saw this <laughs> yeah. yeah but my favorite account on twitter is uh get raw milk at get raw milk i'll have to follow him. yeah fantastic you can help you find raw milk local farms you know grass-fed stuff 
Yeah, that's awesome. So the reason why I'm such an advocate for animal food in particular, right, and especially red meat, because, um, you know, animal food's been so demonized for so long, but they're the most bioavailable foods for our body. So whey protein, egg protein, red meat, um, pork, chicken, turkey, all these animal foods have the right amino acid content, specifically leucine, to trigger muscle protein synthesis. So whenever you work out or you know, whenever you do something physically active, you need that leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis so that way you can start to grow muscle. So it's so important that we're able to have access to these foods. And what nobody understands, because you've been told this narrative of, oh, red meat's bad for you, red meat's bad for the environment, cow farts, um, that's all wrong. Because if you feed cows in a regenerative fashion, right, paddock grazing, just like they were raised to do millions and millions of years ago, there's a giant herd of cow, right? And they all eat grass and then, you know, they do their bodily functions there and then they move on to a different area and they do the same thing, right? The work of like Alan Savory, um, different farms all over the country. I'm blanking on some of the names. There's one actually right up the road here for me called Star Farms. Um, when you raise cows this way, the way that they're supposed to be raised, you actually sequester carbon back into the soil. It's actually carbon net negative. So despite the fact that carbon and its general harm to the atmosphere is sometimes overblown and tends to be thrown out there a lot with bad information and generally under the narrative that, you know, of the leftist talking point of climate change, um, if you want to reduce that, then you should advocate for grass-fed, grass-finished beef, right? Regenerative agriculture. Um, have you heard a lot about that? And I and to kind of tag on to that, I feel like there's a lot of room in New York because New York isn't just New York City, right? There's a lot of rural areas in New York, and I'm sure there's a lot of farms up there. Um, are you aware of anything kind of like that in New York? So what you were just bringing up, that's how all agriculture would be if we actually had a, a proper system, like a, like a libertarian system of property rights. Right. And, and people say, oh, you know, that's just idealistic. I can't remember the name of the case, but I will come back to you with it. It's one of the, the big tort law cases that I read in tort law. And it was in Arizona, north of Phoenix, where they started opening those big industrial cattle farms, you know, just you know, tens of thousands of cows just in the middle of the desert. Um, they feed them all from the troughs and it smells terrible. And these people had a development and then all of a sudden this cattle farm opened next to it and the smell was horrible. So they sued them for nuisance, uh, you know, for destroying the value of their property. And the court said, like, mm, no, it's it's a farming area now. Like, you you just have to you just have to sell. Or they worked it out maybe somehow where the the residents paid for the cows to move or something like that. Uh, but just this idea of the courts giving deference to business because they are businesses, uh, or because it's a local industry. You know, a local judge favors a local industry. Uh, you know, and there's nothing you know that you can appeal on. Uh, you know, even back to like the industrial revolution when they were letting these huge smoke billowing factories in the middle of cities uh, open up. You know, there, there's court cases being like, well, it's an industrial area. You should expect to like have your lungs destroyed when you walk through there, even though it's a public street. And that's not how it should work. If we actually care about private property, if someone's putting smoke in their factory onto your house next door, they've invaded your property, but they put something into your property. And you should be able to enjoin them from doing that. You should be able to go to a court and say, stop them. Uh, and that's what would happen to all of these factory farms. 
because the runoff from these things is disgusting. The amount of antibiotics that gets into the water, the, the, the sludge that gets into the water, it, it's absolutely disgusting. And there's often no coming back for, uh, back from it um, you know, if, if something like that has been near you. Um, but also to go you know, to the, the cow fart issue, because I always get asked about that since I'm running against AOC, the cow fart. Um, I don't talk about climate change because it's distracting from the main issue. The main issue is we're destroying the planet. We're doing it in many, many different creative ways. Um, you know, and I happen to believe that too much carbon you know, in the atmosphere is going to create climate change and is. But you don't have to believe that. All you have to do is pick up any glass of water from any faucet and send it off to a lab and have it tested, see what's in it. There's going to be prescription medicines, there's going to be microplastics, mm -hmm. there's going to be oil, yep. there's going to be all these carcinogens in it. And that's not because it just fell in. <laughs> like it's not, it's, it didn't just get there. It didn't come on a, you know, a rock from space. People put that there and then were not ever held accountable for it. And they were able to do that because of the corporate structure, because of things like the EPA and the Clean Air and Water Act. People were just able to do this completely legally. So to answer your actual question, I don't know any specifics here in New York. Uh, I do know there are a lot of uh, raw milk farms and you know farms that act that way. And whenever I you know like go up to the Finger Lakes, you know, on, on vacation or whatever, we definitely stop at all those little Amish farms. It's great. Um, I think Larry Sharp has some topics on this. I can't remember. Uh, I've been paying more attention to the federal issues, but on the, on the federal level, like you have to make it easier for the small farms to compete across state lines. Right. Uh, I think Thomas Massey had a bill on this for for smaller meat producers. Uh, he also promised me on Twitter. Uh, in a public tweet that he would reintroduce his raw milk bill. Uh, I have not checked or followed mm -hmm. up. That was a few months nice. ago. I'll have to check. Um, but just anything like that, you have to make it, you have to allow ways for the small farmers to make income. And when, when you make it very, very difficult for them to make income, they're not going to be around. And when they're not around and people need beef, they're going to go to the one source. The one source is going to be the factory farm. And right. the irony is that the factory farms are the ones that didn't shut down during all of COVID. The little farms did, and yet meat prices are still skyrocketing. Right. And see, another problem with this whole corporate structure when it comes to meat, you know, you have your Tyson, Cargill, and I can't remember the uh, two other big meat manufacturers. Um, they're basically allowed to send their meat straight to a store already packaged and then sell it. For for these small farms, they actually have to sell you like a whole cow. They can't sell you individual cuts. Um, I can't remember the exact stipulations around that. Um, but Thomas Massey, I know, I think he put together kind of a bill to kind of dismantle that. But I couldn't imagine anything really better than for people to push for this regenerative agriculture. Um, I find this so fascinating. And if you ever get a chance, you should definitely look into this stuff because it's it's just so very interesting. You get a better product, right? So you get grass-fed, grass-finished meat. The cows are better taken care of. So, you know, you have happier animals and you can actually regrow grasslands by doing this. And it's better for the environment. I mean, there is literally no downside to this and it can scale. Um, I can't remember who exactly said it. I want to say it might've been Alan Savory or... One of those guys who's real big on the uh, regenerative agriculture. Writes about food. Yeah, right, right. Um, they said if you were right now, only about two to four percent, I think, of farms in the U.S. are you know regenerative agriculture farms. If you were to just get that up to forty percent, they said you could reverse all man-made climate change. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but. Um, They've like done research as well for plant-based burgers versus your grass-fed, grass-finished burgers. 
the plant-based burger is actually just as bad for the environment as a grass-fed grass-finished burger is good for the environment right so if you want to advocate once again for the plant to get better you should advocate for regenerative agriculture and only buy grass-fed grass-finished meat from your local farmer um unfortunately i don't get in touch with a lot of my local farmers i do buy pretty much only grass-fed grass-finished just because uh, i i got butcher box like two or three years ago and i've become such a snob for it but um that's kind of another free market thing is that you're starting to see a lot of this stuff kind of pop up you know these online grocery deliveries i think that's really cool stuff as well you might be thinking how do i go to my local farm to buy raw milk which mm -hmm. is the law in new york you cannot buy it from a store you have to buy it from the source well i don't actually buy raw milk i associate with raw milk so the gentleman in your neck, neck of the woods uh somewhere in pennsylvania who, who apparently lives near a bunch of amish people and every week he drives around all their farms he gets hundreds of gallons of their milk he gets some of their their meats and like you put in your order online each week and he shows up at your door sometime on sunday you don't know when you you uh you don't pay him in cash that'd be purchasing you associate with him and he associates with your cash and i associate with his raw milk uh, okay. grass-fed beef lamb all of that and then everyone's very very happy and he goes on to the next person to associate with uh, and I had to sign a waiver at the beginning saying that I believe the founders meant well when they wrote the Constitution and that freedom of association is our greatest right. And I was like, actually, I'm fine signing this. I, you know, freedom of association is our greatest right. So I, I associate with raw milk. Uh, and it's been good. Uh, I, you know, correlation is not causation, but I, I've had ulcerative colitis like my entire life, my entire adult life. You know, I've about been on medicine for it. I would get checked out. And I went to a new doctor. Um, I think last January, he's like, you don't have ulcerative colitis. It doesn't look like you've ever had it. And it was about a year before when I started drinking raw milk. And on the crazy website where I do my association order, it says like, will cure. And then it has a list of all the diseases that claim to be cured. And I just you know, rolled my eyes at it. But ulcerative colitis is like the top one listed. And I'm like, oh, yeah. who knows? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a health expert. Uh, but I don't have colitis anymore. And wow. I, get to, I get to drink delicious milk. Wow. That's... Uh... That's really interesting. <laughs> Holy crap. Causation. This is not a study. It's an yeah. anecdote. But I like to go tell people that like the crazy guy's website is true. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've never heard anyone kind of have an antidote like that. That's yeah, it's super interesting. Um, something else I kind of wanted to ask you about. So you're a lawyer for family court. Um, have you done divorce stuff as well, or is it just for um parents and children? So I'll do custody now and then, uh, but my job, you know, I'm a public defender. So it's when your kids get taken away by the government. Uh, so if the government comes up, you know, in the middle of the night, they take your kids away, or if they say they've been missing too much school, we're going to send them to a shelter now or whatever it is. The day that happens, you get assigned me or someone from my, my group uh, as your lawyer. Uh, now, sometimes like a custody case will go along with a neglect or an abuse case, or like one of the parents will file in the middle and then we'll handle that. Um, I've never actually done a divorce, so I've done custody. Uh, I don't see myself ever doing a divorce uh, in the job that I have, but I don't think our, our contract covers it. So no, uh, just the ones where the government is the adversary typically. Okay, yeah, that's actually a pretty libertarian job. And I know people kind of turn their nose up in the air at lawyers and stuff like that, but you know, I think that's more so God's work. Um, I get paid to fight against the government on behalf yeah, of the government. It's right. The like I, it, I cannot think of a more libertarian. Right. Job. And so, I'm getting my tax dollars back, right? Because some of this is a government contract. <laughs> right. Um, 
So what has been your experience as a lawyer? Does it seem like a lot of the cases that the government files are unreasonable? Um, you know, kind of outline that if you can. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I won't go into specifics, but sorry, something I realized just the other day. Uh, I've been doing this since 2018. Uh, right after I graduated, I started at uh, the Bronx Defenders, where I work now. Uh, and now the majority of my time in Bronx Family Court has been virtual because we left in March 2020. We haven't been back. So it's been just over three years and more than a year and a half of it has been virtual. So I work from right here where I'm sitting right now in my bedroom. Uh, my wife is in the other room with the cats, which I'm allergic to. So she works out there. I work in here until we can get a bigger apartment. Um, you know, I've been saving on commuting. It's been fine. Uh, but supposedly during this whole shutdown, we're not in court and you don't get like full due process really. Supposedly the agency, uh, ACS, has only been filing uh, emergency cases. So they have to do a removal when it's an emergency. And yet somehow we've had the same number of cases. So I think that goes a little bit to your to your point. Like somehow they were doing you know, 25 a week before COVID and now that they're only doing emergencies, they're still doing 25 a week. Uh, a lot of them are far more ridiculous than you can imagine. You know, it will be an, an anonymous tip is called in saying, you know, in, in reality, my ex did X, Y, Z, which is made up. And then ACF will come to the door and the person will refuse to let them in because, you know, it's none of your damn business. And then a case is filed. And the, they believe what the person said because you didn't let them in. You don't have the presumption of innocence in, in all of these cases. You don't have the right not to testify. Um, hearsay can be used against you. So like what a child says, what a 17-year-old who's having a fight with her mom says on Tuesday of 2020 can be used as hearsay two years later in a trial today in 2022, even though the child's like, no, I just made it up. We were having a fight. It still comes in as evidence. Um, so the other issue is anytime you see a story in the news, child dies, child beaten, any of that, which is always horrible. I'm not advocating for child death, obviously. Um, but anytime you see that, every single judge in the family court, they tense up and they are much more likely to rule against you because they're ever you know their undying fear is that they will show up on the front page of the post this judge sent this child home to right. die and that's how they'll write it and they'll they'll drag the judge through the mud and so what we get instead is kids in foster care needlessly for days weeks months and sometimes years uh, i definitely have cases where kids are still in care where you know me taking thirty thousand foot view not the lawyer just someone who knows the facts of the case where I know that this person is not a danger to their kids and never was, uh, and they haven't had their kids all this time. And when you put them in these care facilities, you know, usually they start off in a group care facility, and during COVID, it was all locked down, so you couldn't visit your kids. So you get your kids taken away, and sometimes people are going three months, and they, all they could do is talk to them on the phone once a day. And that was and whatever you did, there's very little you did that can warrant that punishment without a trial, without any kind of due process, without a hearing of any kind that is the worst punishment you can do to someone. I mean, and, and to you know, forget my client, forget the parents for a minute, imagine the kid. What trauma can a parent inflict that can be that, as bad as that? In very, very few of my cases, does the punishment actually fit the, the crime? Uh, which is why I love my job. I, you know, it makes me passionate to go in and do my job every day because I really am pissed off at what's going on in almost every single instance. Holy crap, wow. I had no idea family court was, I always kind of knew, I don't want to say it was a kangaroo court, but that it was rough, especially for men in divorce court. But like when it comes to the government filing against people, I, I had no idea that it gets like so that. The, the, 
I mean, think about this. You know, I grew up in a rural town. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of child protective services. Like I knew there were people out there that did that. Uh, I go, I go to college in New York. I go to law school, you know, five, four years after college. All this time I'm living in New York, living in Manhattan, uptown. I have no idea what ACS is. I've never heard of it. I see a uh, an application that, you know, oh, do this clinic with the Bronx Defenders. You can get some experience. So I was like, oh, I want to be a public defender. I'll sign up for that. I show up to the first day of it, you know, a semester later, I, you know, I'm not really prepared. I'm like, oh, this is a family defense clinic. We represent parents. I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. This is different. I thought maybe there'd be like, you know, a couple cases every week. We get more cases than the criminal court does usually. I have far more clients than all of my criminal court colleagues um, at any given time. I think I have about 65 or 70 right now. And we are in court every single day. You know, most criminal cases don't go to trial. Pretty much every family court, uh, maybe 60% of them go to trial. And about 30% of them will have an emergency hearing at some time, which is like pretty much a full trial. Um, so like I have two trials today. So I'm constantly in and out. And, you know, I complain about my 65 to 70 uh, caseload. I work for this wonderful institution um, with huge support. I have social workers. I have uh, parent advocates. I have all this support. The independent attorneys, you know, I get the dad in the case. Some other organization has to get the mom. We can't represent the same person. So some independent attorney who has 500 cases, because they've all retired during COVID, they, you know, they were all, you know, older and they didn't, you know, weren't really good with computers. So COVID hit and all the independent attorneys quit and they went from having about 80 to 90 cases each to having hundreds and hundreds. And so we'll show up for court and I'll be ready for trial and ACS will be you know, ready for trial. And this person will just be like, I, I don't know what's going on. Like I can't. And it's not their fault. It's not their fault at all. Uh, but clearly, you know, in the free market, the, the amount they would be paid would go up when there's a lot fewer of them, and there's more demand. But I found out recently, I haven't had, gotten a raise in 15 years. So the same price you were getting representing someone 15 years ago is what you're getting now. And we've had 15 years of inflation. Uh, and they have 500 cases. So maybe they're making a little bit more money than they were because they have so many cases. But they're not giving anyone representation. But everyone has to have a lawyer. So they, it doesn't matter if you're getting a fair representation. They will just give you a lawyer. So it, it really is a, uh, a meat grinder for a lot of people. And the way I advise my clients is you know, there's a chance we might go to trial and we can prove your innocence and we can get justice. But most likely, our objective is to get you out of this as quickly as possible. Like, that's the way. And what that usually is is that the agency, ACS, will say, oh, well, you allegedly hit your wife, even though you say you didn't and you adamantly deny it. If you go do a, a domestic violence class, we'll dismiss the case. And so I'll have clients do that. I'll be like, do it, because that will take you two months. It's going to take us eight months to get to trial, and you won't be able to go home until we get to trial. So just do the class. Um, so a lot of times they get away without having to take a plea by settling like that. But it, it's all a system of control, and the amount of due process that goes into the, the, the due process to control over your life ratio is unlike anything else. So there's nothing quite like family court in a, a dense urban area um, where they, they really are all over the place. And where pretty much everyone who is a parent in family court at one point was a child in family court. Wow. Yeah, it's it's unreal. I've like I said, I had no idea. I've grown up in pretty much small towns all throughout here in Pennsylvania. And um, you know, I never really heard of that. You know, you heard people say, Oh, maybe they called child protective services or something like that, but I had no idea kind of what that means. But that um I think that should kind of tell everybody like, look 
you should try to settle these things without the government. I mean, just about anything you should try and do that. But like, especially something like that, bringing in an entity that has no understanding or no facts about the situation and you're just throwing them tidbits of information that they're not going to be able to interpret accurately. There's no good ending to this. And especially when, you know, these people generally aren't morally good people themselves. Um, and let, let, let's say they yeah. were good people. Let's, let's just say they're completely neutral. Mm-hmm. Their incentive is, is not to find justice. And I'll, I'll often tell this to clients who will have a very minor case and the caseworker is just all over them and won't close the case. I'll be like, look, they have a quota. If they have 12 cases, they can't have any more or whatever the number is. So wouldn't they rather have 12 of you than 12 of that? You know, and my clients will be like, I'm not like some crazy person on the subway. I'm like, wouldn't they rather have 12 of you than that person that you were describing a minute ago, the person who does whoop their kids and the person who did murder their child, all that stuff? Of course they would, because it makes their job easier. So the incentive really is to push away the hard cases and to keep the easy cases going. And like, I'm not saying anyone is doing that consciously, but that's how the incentive works. And we have to realize that whenever government gets involved, all incentives are out the window. Like we, we, we have a, the idea that we're doing something for the greater good, but someone who has an incentive to look out for themselves is doing it. And so we always have to remember that it's going to be, going to be the case, that people respond to the incentives that they're given. Uh, so we have to be very aware of that. And one place that comes up is that, and again, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't gone into the contract, but a lot of people will say like, oh yeah, they, they made your client do three different programs. Isn't it funny that the three different charities that run those programs are all run by the same you know, group of CEOs and friends who are all getting these government contracts. And I, it's too much for me to dig into and to see if it really is just grift. But again, when it's government, you should just assume that it's grift and that someone's doing something wrong. Right. Well, I've had you for a little bit here. Um, I've been trying to ask my guests these last two questions on every episode, but I'm, I have not been successful, but I'm glad I remembered here. Um, John, what does liberty look like to you? Look like? Not what does it smell like? No. <laughs> I mean, li- liberty would look like a, a place where people don't force people to do where people can have just as wide a variety of opinions as we have now, but no one is actually forced to accept someone else's. And, and that's really it. And it, if we're going to have a government, which I think kind of by definition is antithetical to liberty, but if we're going to have a government, it has to have institutions, and it's not me bragging, but it has to have institutions like the one that I work for as a bulwark against their own, you know, bad incentives. They are incentivized to act badly. We need people who are incentivized to stop them from acting badly. Um, Yeah, so if you're going to have a government, you need an incentive to rein in government while it exists. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree. And that does, um, you know, make sense. It's kind of what our government originally was set up to do with the, um, you know, the three different branches. But, um, you know, we could see kind of how that goes. They're all holding hands behind the scenes um the other question is what does health look like to you so i'll tell you this just a short story i used to be very very overweight now i'm only slightly overweight uh and what did it you know people like oh how do you lose all that weight well in 2019 at my brother's wedding apparently i got bit by a tick and i got lyme disease i didn't know it i was misdiagnosed for a couple weeks worst pain but you know I, i was telling my now wife like 
if this goes on, I'm going to kill myself. Like this is the worst pain I've ever been in. Um, eventually got the rashes all over, went to a doctor. He's like, oh, you got Lyme disease here, treated, gone. But ever since then, I've not had an appetite. I, I used to be a very, very hungry person. I have not felt hungry. And so I lost like 65 pounds. At one point, I'd lost like 80 pounds. It got scary and I started like setting alarms to eat. But at one point in my life, I thought like, if I can just lose weight, I'll feel healthy. Uh, and that was not the case. I actually, when I would see myself like looking a lot skinnier, I was like freaking out. I was like, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. Like I should be going to the gym. Like I should be, you know, like, monitoring my intake, you know, willingly instead of just forgetting to eat for three days. Um, so it doesn't look like that. Uh, health looks like, you know, you know, ideal bodily functioning within your best efforts. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's an understandable goal for most people. Um, right now in my life, personally, I'm getting married in right. about, thank you, in about 10 months. And um, I'm intentionally putting on weight to also put on muscle. And I'm trying to treat my hair because as you can see, I'm, I'm not quite as thick as I used to be up top. To the best one. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and it is a little uncomfortable for me because I was 250 pounds at one point and I'm about 5'11 ish. So I was a pretty big guy and I lost about 75 pounds. And it is kind of hard for me to look at the scale and see the weight going up. But at the same time, I realized like, look, I'm looking at this as an investment in my own metabolic and physical health, right? You're putting kind of cash away so that way you can enjoy the gains, the muscle, the whatever down the road, right? Better metabolism. I'm able to eat more food. I'm able to go out and be social a little bit more. I don't have to watch everything I eat. If I want to go have ice cream, then my fiance and I can go have ice cream. We can go have cheesecake. Um, sometimes not just chronically dieting um, is health right? Because I think a lot of people get fixated on the weight loss, but sometimes maybe just taking that break and there's data to support this too, um, is incredibly healthy and that's going to be good for your mental health. Um, is there anything else you kind of want to hit on? Um, if not, we're going to um, just go ahead and plug your stuff. We'll get on out of here. I have a list of items I thought we would get to. We said I'm anti-vaccine mandate. I'm anti-vaccine mandate. Okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I think we hit on it. Um, no, I, I think we covered everything. This is a great time. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Of course. Uh, and for anyone out there, um, the Libertarians had a ballot line in New York. We've won it in 2018, thanks to Larry Sharp. And then they changed the requirements to have a ballot line in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, and we lost it. And so we have to get back on, and we need twice as many votes as we got last time to maintain it. Uh, so if you have any interest in helping the liber Libertarians have a permanent position in New York, and if you're in New York especially, if you happen to be in New York City, please go to my website, how2022.com. It starts April 19th. We need to be out getting signatures. Just sign up on my website, say that you're willing to do that, and I will, re I will reach out to you personally. Um, if you're not in New York City, but you're in New York, go to LarrySharp.com. Check out Larry Sharp's campaign. <laughs> sign up. He needs 50,000 signatures to get on the ballot. I need 3,500 in a, a much smaller area. He needs 55,000. Uh, and if you, so if you want Larry Sharp to actually be in the race, which if you're a libertarian, if you're listening to this, you probably are. This is what we need to do. It's not going to happen unless we do the six weeks between 419 and May whatever, May 20-something. That's when the rubber hits the road. The election is one thing. We need to get on the ballot. So how2022.com for my, my campaign and LarrySharp.com for Larry Sharp.
Yeah, Larry Sharp is an awesome guy, and I cannot say enough good things about him. He is just through and through an absolutely fantastic guy. Um, I guess speaking of that, maybe um, sometime next month, I'm planning on hosting some roundtables. Maybe um, we could do what a New York libertarian success looks like. Um, I'm liking the sound of that. I may have to reach out to him because I, I, I... he wanted to talk to me about some health stuff and there are some points that we didn't hit. So I think we may have to kind of work that out. And uh, maybe, um, maybe we can do it. So it comes out right before uh, petitioning starts uh, in April. Bingo. I like it. This is, this is the hill. Like, this is the hill we have to get over is getting all these signatures. It's a lot. I can't believe how many it is, but we're going to do it. I totally think it's possible. And as we kind of hit on a little bit earlier, um, I think people are hungry for the message and I think it's really saleable in 2022 and 2024. And, um, you know, here in Pennsylvania, we have the most elect- elected libertarians in the entire country, over 125, right? Um, now, they may not be major seats, but it's working towards something. Now, as to whether or not that's going to amount to anything, I don't know, but it's worth I mean, noting. It's just like we have evidence of all of their failed policies. Now, we will have evidence to say, look, you elected a libertarian. No one blew up. No one's legs fell off. We can do it again. Right. All right, John, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. We're going to be in touch because I think we should totally make that happen. And I'm sure Larry would be down to do it. So if if you know Tom for 52, Tom Queter, I bet he would be totally down as well. Cool. Well, I would like to get him on then. And um, awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll get him on. And then uh, we'll try to work that out sometime here in the near future. All right. Amazing. It was it was a pleasure, man. Thank you. Of course. All right, everybody. This is number 47 in Liberty and Health. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.